Hello, I'm Chris Marshall, Deputy Editor of Holyrood. Here at Holyrood, we re recently hosted four online hustings looking at some of the big issues in the run-up to the election on May the 6th. First up in this episode, Editor Mandy Rhodes shares a session on the economy. Hello and welcome to the Holyrood Magazine and Scottish Financial Enterprise Election Hustings. I'm Mandy Rhodes, I'm the editor of Holyrood Magazine. I'm sorry, given the restrictions we're all living in, that we can't be all in the same room, but at least we're all hopefully fully dressed. Unlike a recent Zoom faux pas by an Estonian politician who was caught short lying semi-naked in an unmade bed, smoking an e-cigarette and listening to dodgy pop music when the Parliament's cameras turned on him. And if you don't know what I'm referring to, then I suggest you Google it, but do it later, because for now, we've got some fully clothed politicians waiting to hear your questions. But first, some housekeeping. As I said, Holyrood is bringing you this hustings in partnership with SFE. So we're very grateful for their sponsorship, and we will hear from their chief executive, Sandy Begbie, very shortly. If you're tweeting, then please use the hashtag, hashtag HollywoodHustings21. You'll be able to submit questions via me to our panel by entering them in the chat function at the base of your screen. We're recording today's session, which we will edit and we'll send to all delegates as an on-demand replay. So please keep it clean. And we plan to put this up on both our website as a video and as an audio on our podcast, Politically Speaking. In terms of format, I'm going to do a very short Q&A with Sandy before introducing you to our panel, who will all have two minutes to set out their stall, and then we will open up to questions from the audience, and there's a lot of them. So a lot to get through. So let's crack on. So first, Sandy, welcome. This is the first time that SFE has produced its own election manifesto. So this is your opportunity now to let the politicians know what you're looking for. Yes, uh, and good morning, uh, Mandy, and um, thanks for everyone making the time to, to join. This is the first time that SFE have produced a, a manifesto, and I, I, I do believe, given the scale and size of the sector uh, and our importance around certain things around economic recovery, uh, the transition to net zero economy, etc., that it's important that as a sector that employs 160,000 plus people in Scotland, um, that we do have the opportunity to speak to politicians directly and give them a sense of what we're looking for out of the next Scottish government. That net zero economy and the green recovery and building back better, they're all words that are being bandied around at the moment, Sandy. What does that actually mean for financial services? So I think financial services is uniquely placed to play an important role in both economic recovery and, and net zero. Uh, I think that, uh, as we've shown already, the financial services sector have supported businesses over the last 12 months helping to administer many of the government uh, schemes that have been put in place. But as we know, many businesses are now going to um, uh, have to experience pretty challenging times over the next few years uh, to recover to, to, to that position, and financial services is, will be there to support them. So we do have that opportunity to help them. Businesses also will need to go through a transition phase as they move to net zero. And many of those businesses, this was this is going to take 10, 15, 20 years in some instances, like some of the sectors, oil and gas, aviation, et cetera. And they're going to need support from financial services and funding to help make that transition. So we do think that um, the sector in Scotland, um, working together with other businesses and the, the uh, government, um, can play a, a, a very strong role in both economic recovery, but also that transition to a, a net zero economy. I mean, the pandemic has just been a tragedy for everybody. 
Um, but there are always opportunities from a crisis. Do you see any? Uh, yeah, yes, I do. I, I think that um, uh, I, I think that I've been pleasantly um, and delighted with the conversation I've been having with members in FS, but also other businesses around a real focus to have a positive impact on society. So I think, as you rightly say, Mandy, I think unlike many other crises we've had in the past, uh, this has genuinely touched everyone in so many different ways. Uh, and I do think that um, with certainly within financial services and professional services, there's a real sense that we, as we come out of this, we collectively want to have a positive impact uh, on society. Uh, and, and you'll see more of that with the launch of our strategy uh, in the middle of May, where we have a very clear objective um, around as a sector about what that impact on society could be, whether it's around about skills, inclusion, jobs, investment, helping businesses. There'll be a lot more in that around our role in helping to society to recover. And as we do build back better, as everybody is saying, what's the USP of Scottish financial services? I would say there's there's four points I would pull out in that, Mandy. One is um, I don't think we make enough of our global reputation and heritage in financial services, basically our global brand. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to travel the world over the last 20 years of my career, and Scotland travels very well uh, as a brand, and particularly our heritage in financial services, and certainly that's allowed me to do things in parts of the world that I think um, almost punching above our weight, and I think we need to make more of that. I think, secondly, our education and skills base is second to none. Um, and that's a, a big reason why many businesses have come to uh, 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 set up businesses in Scotland. And of course, the most recent one, JP Morgan, making an announcement uh, around that. Quality of life, I think we, we take again a little bit for granted, but you know, in comparison to many other um, countries and cities in the world, we have a very high standard of living, good quality of life. And the business environment, you know, we are, we are small enough whereby we can get things done, um, uh, but also we have a competitive cost base. And when you put that together with the quality of life and education and skills, it's quite a compelling proposition. And briefly, I think this period has been a time of introspection for us all. What have you learned about yourself, but also about your approach to business going forward? I, I think for me, and, and I was um, probably aware, I was heavily involved in uh, authoring, in fact, led the authoring of the Young Persons Guarantee. And I think for me, I think the, um, there's been a real reflection point around what really inclusion means. Uh, and I think that uh, what that means for me is really around making sure that investment and growth as we come out of this is, is really for all. Uh, and personally speaking, I've, as, I, as I put together the Young Persons Guarantee and talking to members of SFE, there's a real desire to really have that inclusion lens on uh, everything that we do. And, and I think that uh, the last 12 months has made us reflect in the, in, in the widest sense around what do we really want to, to get out of um, both economic recovery, but also the importance of climate, environment, jobs, skills, and making sure no one's left behind. Thank you very much, Sandy. And talking of nobody being left behind, um, I'm now delighted to introduce our stellar panel of politicians. Um, in no particular order, although we have chosen it, um, 
Kate Forbes, who you may already know as our finance secretary, but for today's purposes, is like everybody else representing her party, which is the Scottish National Party. We have Murdo Fraser from the Scottish Conservative Party, Daniel Johnson of the Scottish Labour Party, Lorna Slater of the Scottish Greens, and Christine Jardin, MP from the Liberal Democrats. They've now got two minutes each, and I'm going to ask Kate to kick us off, followed by Murdo, Daniel, Lorna, and then Christine. Kate. Thanks very much, uh, Mandy. Well, financial services is, of course, a rudder to our economy, but never more so than the law than the last year. There's been a lot of focus uh, on government support and interventions when it comes to business support, but government could not have done it in Scotland or elsewhere without financial services. And I think financial services have actually come out of the last 12 months, if I may say so, with a really robust reputation in terms of how they've supported business as well as what they've done. We've all been through a tough time that's been well documented, but there is hope on the horizon with over 2.7 million uh, vaccinated in Scotland, case numbers falling and relaxation on restrictions being accelerated. But as we start to emerge, we face some very difficult and pressing choices. Uh, the economic recovery of our country matters perhaps more than anything else uh, right now. And we've got to do that jointly with financial services. It cannot be government alone. We have to recover as we uh, managed uh, the, the pandemic in the first place. It needs to be a national endeavour. Uh, three things, if I might uh, mention, in terms of the SNP's uh, proposals on economic recovery. The first is jobs, the second is infrastructure investment, and the third is reshaping the economy of the future. Firstly, on jobs, Sandy's already mentioned the young person's guarantee, but we can't allow that generation to be lost. We know that the pandemic has had a stark impact on the job prospects of our young people, and through that young person's guarantee, we will ensure that every 18 to 24-year-old is given the opportunity of a job, apprenticeship, education, training, and that includes in financial services. Too few women are getting the help they need. Financial services have done a lot in terms of closing that gender gap, but we'll create a, a women's business centre to help uh, more women. And we'll continue the National Transition Training Fund to help people to, to retrain who are facing redundancy or unemployment. The next two is on infrastructure, continuing the delivery of the National Infrastructure Mission to boost annual infrastructure by 1% of GDP by the end of the next parliament, as well as investing in a big house building programme, 100,000 uh, homes over the next uh, 10 uh, years. And lastly, as I close, uh, reshaping the economy of the future. Uh, financial services has been leading the way in helping businesses to digitise and to take advantage of new opportunities. And alongside that, we'll establish a £100 million digital boost scheme to support small businesses. So there's three ways in our manifesto of how we propose to help with economic recovery, but I hope we'll be doing it jointly with financial services. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Kate. Learn that. Everybody speak very fast and you'll get a lot in. <laughs> Murdo, please. Thank you. Thank you, Mandy. Can I just start by thanking uh, SFE and, and Holyrood Events for setting up uh, the Sustings this morning and also congratulate SFE on their manifesto full of positive ideas, which was very, very welcome contribution. Uh, financial services are a key part of the Scottish economy. I think we've all known that. And one thing that's impressed me during the last year is the way the industry has adapted to new working arrangements and supported so many people in terms of uh, home working. And I think there are lessons there uh, for the future. Uh, and actually it is an opportunity uh, for the industry. Our key message in this election is there needs to be an unrelenting focus on recovery from COVID, recovery of our economy and recovery of our public services. And for the next five years, all the attention of government 
needs to go into that uh, objective. In relation to that, we have a number of proposals in relation to the, the economy. Our target would be full employment because we're going to face a challenge in terms of rising unemployment over the next uh, short period. We want to see jobs for all. We're proposing job security councils to bring together public and private sector to help people back into work. We're proposing a skills revolution with an innovative idea of a right to retrain account for every adult worth £500 a year so they can invest in skills and retraining and a new drive on apprenticeships. So every young person who wants an apprenticeship has one available to them. And business needs a stable fiscal regime. That's why we are opposing any new tax increases. And our ambition would be to restore tax parity in terms of income tax with the rest of the UK when that becomes affordable. But there's also an elephant in the room in this election, and that is the threat of another independence referendum. And we know that uh, if the SNP get a majority in the election, they want to pursue that. I think that would be very damaging for Scotland. Uh, it'd be very damaging for business. It'd be very damaging for the financial services sector. We want to put constitutional change on the back burner for at least five years. We're, we're standing in this election for an unrelenting focus on rebuilding Scotland and rebuilding our public services. Thank you. Thank you, Meadow. Daniel. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mandy. And, and can I too thank uh, Holyrood uh, for organising this event? But I think more importantly, uh, this is a, going to be a really important discussion because the challenges we face are, and I hate using the word unprecedented because we're having to use it so much at the moment, but it truly is. The, the economic consequences of COVID are really only just becoming apparent. And, and actually, I think one of the things that we really need to do is, is move the conversation on, because I'm not sure that public awareness is, is really there in terms of what we'll need to do. We're really just at the end of the beginning. Um, as we see the furlough scheme unwind, as it inevitably will have to, we will see a jobs crisis. And while businesses are set to reopen, that they've, they've managed to limp through to this stage. No, uh, no small thanks uh, to the efforts of the financial services industry, but nonetheless, their balance sheets are absolutely shot to pieces. We have a private sector debt crisis that I think is only just going to become apparent in the, in the coming months. And so we will need to use every single policy lever that we have available to us in order to address that and in order to recover. And we're gonna hear a lot about recovery, but I think there's another word that we need to talk about, which is resilience. And if I can make a sort of slightly esoteric point to begin with, is that, that, that we need to move the planning horizon on. We're, we're going from month to month, and we really need to understand what the end of the vaccination program will deliver us. Social distancing has a huge impact on business, and we need to get that greater planning horizon so that we can get back on our feet. But recovery will need to address those debt crisis and joblessness uh, crisis. So we'll need to have focus from every government agency on delivering those things. We'll need to focus on reskilling. We'll also need to reshape our economy, but in ways that, that will no doubt be important regardless of COVID, but COVID I think makes them more essential, whether that's digitization or, or uh, uh, reviewing uh, non-domestic rates. Uh, these are the things that I think recovery will require. And Labour has proposals to address these things. We have a, a billion pound uh, jobs recovery scheme, a high st street stimulus uh, package, uh, just to name two things. But undoubtedly financial services have a key role to play as they have done to date in delivering those things and in getting the investment uh, to businesses so that our economy can recover uh, from this dreadful pandemic. 
Thanks, Daniel. I wanted to be the first to use the word esoteric. So well done. <laughs> Lorna. There we go. Thank you. Hi, I'm Lorna Slater. I'm the co-leader of the Scottish Green Party, which is a post I hold as a volunteer. Uh, so my day job is that I'm an electromechanical engineer and I work for a company that builds tidal turbines. And I'm actually just watching my notification stick because it's launching this week to see if there's any terrible crisis that I need to go and deal with turbine. Um, we're currently building the world's largest tidal turbine in Dundee, and uh, it's going to be towed to Orkney this week to be installed. So it's a very busy time for me on all fronts. I'm also a trustee for the Edinburgh Remakery on Leith Walk, which is part of a vibrant network of social businesses that we have in Leith. I realize that the Scottish Greens are not necessarily seen as a natural party for the financial services sector, which is why it's, I think it's important that we take part in events like this. So thank you very much for inviting me. Um, the Scotland we want to build is one that is fairer and greener and doing everything it can to tackle the biggest threat of all, which is the climate emergency. At the same time, we want to end the chaos of Brexit and the mishandling of the economy by Downing Street. The Scotland we want to build is one that is back in Europe and is leading change across the continent. Only the Scottish Greens have the solutions to a fair and green recovery from the pandemic, which leaves no one behind. Our manifesto is to invest in renewable energy, public transport, warm homes, and protecting nature, creating tens of thousands of new well-paid jobs and rebuilding the public sector to address the urgent challenges that face our country. In this election, our future is at stake. With global science showing we have only nine years before climate breakdown becomes irreversible, the Scottish Greens are the only party contesting this election with the practical solutions to address the climate emergency with the urgency that it needs. Thanks, Lorna. And Christine. Morning. Thank you. Thank you all for inviting us along to this. It is important. And being an Edinburgh MP, I am always aware that the financial services sector is so important to our economy in Scotland and is the UK's second largest financial services sector. COVID has had an enormous impact on your sector like every other, but financial services has also had to endure the impact of Brexit, which you don't need me to tell you is having um, such a worrying effect on the financial services sector in this country. An impact that we in the Liberal Democrats feel would be amplified enormously by repeating the mistakes of Brexit with Scottish independence. So that is one of the reasons why the Scottish Liberal Democrats believe that we must put the recovery first. In some ways, nothing else matters at the moment, because if we don't get the recovery right, if we don't rebuild the economy, if we don't put people's lives back on track, then frankly, we're not going to get anything right. The pandemic has cost thousands of lives. People have suffered serious illness. Young people have lost out on education, on career possibilities. Individuals have been isolated. And businesses have struggled to pay their bills and survive until the end of the crisis. So that is what I believe we need to focus on. And our offer to the electorate is a liberal one. At its heart is our belief that we need every individual to have the opportunity to achieve their particular potential. And we will put that at the heart of recovery. Action to prevent a job crisis, job guarantee for young people and new graduate training and 
townships, support for growing businesses to help them with cash flow, tax break for high street shops, build new green industries, transition to a just green economy and help people retain and change their careers if they need to with a new training bond, which comes with careers advice. But central to that is a recovery, a recovery that moves us forward to a sustainable green economy for all of us. Thank you, Christine. It's unusual in an election for there to be one main issue, and that is obviously for everybody you've agreed on, recovery. So um, given that he's the chairman of SFE, uh, he gets the prerogative of the first question. So the first question comes from Philip Grant, who's the chair of SFE, and he asks on behalf of all SFE members, in terms of recovery, what do you see the role of financial services being? And if we can come to Mado first. Thanks. Thanks, Mandy. Um, I mean, we've already talked about the hugely important role that financial services plays in relation to the, the Scottish economy. I think for financial services to thrive, we need to have a stable fiscal and regulatory environment. I think there are a number of opportunities that, that arise from COVID. I mean, one of the interesting conversations I've had with members of SFE over the last year has been how the, um, the, the uh, impact of it has led to many more people working from home. And that's actually created opportunities because no longer do you necessarily need to have your workforce living within easy commuting distance of Edinburgh, which means that people who are coming into the office maybe one or two days a week can live much further afield. But to do that, they need much better connectivity at home, which is one of our why one of our top line pledges in this election is to uh, ensure full fibre broadband rollout to every house and business in Scotland by 2027 because if people are going to work from home and we're going to adapt to the changes, then connectivity is going to be very uh, important. We're also proposing a change to the uh, economic development landscape in Scotland, because I think there are concerns about Scottish enterprise. Uh, it has been almost emasculated by the current uh, Scottish government. We want to see more local input into economic development, and we want to see a new focus on exporting with the creation of a Scottish Exporting Institute which will benefit financial services sector as much as any other sector of the economy. Just in terms of that, I mean, how important are the financial services to Scotland? Um, and as you, as the finance secretary? Absolutely essential. I mean, I said in my opening remarks that financial services are a rudder to our economy and never more so than last year. And I think that's absolutely um, without a shadow of a doubt. And if you think about the three areas I outlined in my, my opening, a very speedy pitch around jobs, uh, infrastructure investment and reshaping our future, uh, government definitely, and I'm sure you're delighted to hear this, does not have a monopoly on achieving economic recovery, far from it. If you take jobs, and it's great that Sandy has that dual role in terms of uh, SFE, but also in terms of the, 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 the young person's guarantee, because you know, financial services in Scotland um, have just under 90,000 uh, 90, strong workforce. So in terms of creating jobs, uh, well-paid, uh, meaningful jobs, there's a huge opportunity there for financial services to grow and develop. And we are seeing more and more choosing to set up uh, headquarters or, or branches or centres in Scotland, particularly when it comes to digital and technology. And the more uh, we see of that, 
the stronger the pipeline is of talent as well. So there's a great opportunity. So financial services is key to our uh, pipeline of good, uh, well-paid jobs in Scotland. The two other areas I mentioned around infrastructure investment, if you take one proposal in terms of building 100,000 affordable homes over the next uh, 10 years, yes, for the social benefits, but clearly for the economic benefits and the job creation that that will bring, that can't just be public funds. So there will be a need for private investment and Scottish National Investment Bank is a key way of leveraging that private investment. And the last part I mentioned was around the economy of the future. We have seen financial services lead in terms of building on its strong heritage when it comes to financial services, but embracing innovative uh, new technology um, in terms of its fintech uh, reputation internationally. So I think on those three front, fronts, we need to, as government, need to work collaboratively with financial services. That involves me listening, understanding, responding, uh, not just dictating what will be done over the next five years. Lauren, I wanted to come to you because a lot of the things that are being said, I mean, you said you're not perhaps natural bedfellows of finance or seen in that way, but net zero and green jobs, green recovery, these must all be good news for you. What else do you think financial services can do or you can do for them to help them support you? So that is a really interesting question, Mandy, and it's something that I have a lot of experience of uh, through my own working in renewables. And I think that it is a myth that government investment drives out private investment. Actually, the opposite is true. When governments invest in a product or an industry, they show commitment of, to, of support for that industry and they demonstrate that they've done their due diligence and they demonstrate a direction of a, a travel and intention, which allows private investors to invest with more confidence. And that's exactly what we've seen in my industry in the private sector, where for a, an investment of a few million pounds by the government, Scotland has managed to attract tens of millions of pounds of private investment, all of it going to jobs and businesses in Scotland. So my, the answer to the question is that I think that the government of Scotland should invest with confidence and the things that we think that they should invest in include warm homes, public transportation, restoration of nature and renewable energy. So under our plans, we would directly create 100,000 jobs uh, with our costed plans for this and another 100,000 in supply chain and related activities. So we want to see a financial services sector that works responsibly to promote small and socially responsible businesses and cooperatives and plays its part in securing a socially just transition from fossil fuels to renewables so that no workers lose their livelihoods and communities are not abandoned. Okay, and Daniel, just to address Philip's point directly, what role do you see for the financial services in Scotland's financial and economic recovery? Well, it's, it's twofold, in my view. I mean, one, and it relates to what Kate has already said. I mean, the importance of financial services is, is, is difficult to overstate to Scottish economy. I mean, the, the SFE's own uh, manifesto points out that 40% of service sector exports uh, are from a financial services industry. And indeed, you know, I said in my opening remarks that we need to sort of move public awareness on in a number of uh, points. And actually, the importance of service sector exports is definitely one of those. So if we're going to have recovery, we, we need uh, financial services to remain a strong uh, a sector and to be a strong exporter. But the second point, and again, I, I, I mentioned in my in, introductory remarks, businesses are are going to really struggle in in the in the coming months uh, i was on a, a, a hustings uh, just the other week uh, with wholesalers and one wholesaler was uh, pointing out that up up to this point before covid they had been debt free self financing they were uh, essentially facing th this period with 
over a million pounds worth of debt. And the business owner was essentially having to postpone his uh, retirement. Now, if we're going to recover, uh, there's a huge role for financial services to, to enable those businesses to, to, to essentially reinflate their, 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 uh, their, their balance sheets, to, to have the cash so that they can reinvest in stock. And for those wholesalers, that was their biggest concern. They simply didn't have the money in the bank to buy the stock they needed in order to open up again. So I think there's a huge role for, for financial services, and, and that has to be in partnership with the government. And we've got a strong track record in this country of co-investment. But I think as Murdo was, was uh, alluding to, we actually have to look at, at whether or not our institutions are pointing in the right direction. Are they best uh, suited at the moment to deal with this uh, uh, balance sheet, uh, I think, crisis that our businesses are, are facing? I think build on the investment bank, but I think we have to repurpose um, our enterprise agencies and institutions to ensure that they're, they're uh, basically focused and their mission is to deal uh, with this uh, crisis uh, uh, that, that businesses are facing in Scotland. And Christine, finally, I mean, I think as we go forward, I'll put different questions to different people because we haven't got much time and there's a lot of us. But just in terms of this one in particular, because Philip asked it, um, what do you think the role of the financial services will be? I, I think the role of financial services is going to be huge, and it's actually put quite well in the SFE's own manifesto, where um, it talks about working hand-in-hand hand with um, governments and cross-party working in this, because the fact that the financial services sector managed to remain open and keep giving people advice, as Daniel has referred to already, uh, keep giving people advice, helping them access um, cash is is vital going forward. And I remember, I'm old enough, sadly, I remember um, in 2008, 2009, when we were talking about the financial crash, a financial advisor saying to me, you know, there's a whole generation out there who don't know what double digit interest rates and mortgages are like. They don't know what high inflation is like. Um, a couple of people have mentioned we don't actually know what this recovery is going to look like. We haven't actually got to the end of the we haven't got to the, the end of the tunnel yet, but for global end in September, a whole lot of things will disappear in September. And at that point, we are going to need the financial services sector to be strong, to be to be helping people to cope with the changes to their pensions, their interest rates, their mortgages, all of that. And I think it is essential, as the manifesto says, that we work hand in glove, government, financial sector and across party to make sure that the advice and the support that business is getting is the best it can possibly get. Thanks, Christine. So I'm going to ask a question that's come in from somebody from Aberdeen Standard Investments. A recent British Academy study suggests COVID recovery could take up to 10 years. Kate, do you agree? I think that COVID recovery will take on different forms. And by that, I mean, we've seen from the beginning that economists have increasingly changed their B recoveries to W recoveries to K recoveries, where some businesses have come through the pandemic remarkably well. So tech businesses have seen uh, expansion in particular. Other businesses, tourism and hospitality, have really struggled, but may see a strong staycation market. So when it comes to uh, economic recovery, I think it's going to be a very different experience for some sectors than for others. Some sectors will have changed beyond all recognition. And bluntly, there's probably no return to the way things used to be. And I'm thinking in that regard of the high street. 
the high street. We've been ha- having debates and discussions about the about the the impact on the high street over the last ten years of the increasing digitalisation of our economy. I think people's behavioural changes will be long lasting, and the high street high street fundamentally will have to change. There is no return to the ways of the past. So I think it's a loaded question because there are new opportunities emerging with a crisis, and it's government's job business's job, financial services job, to see those opportunities and help when it comes to retraining, uh, to, to, in terms of ensuring that there's a pipeline of talent for those new jobs, uh, particularly when it comes to green new jobs, um, and where businesses have uh, struggled and may not bounce back, um, helping to guide and support them uh, with new opportunities, particularly when it comes to digital. Well, and I wanted to ask you, I mean, people do keep talking about green jobs and green recovery. I, I know I keep returning to this, but do you think it's just rhetoric um, or do you think people will see that we need to recover differently? Well, I'm very encouraged to hear everybody talking about the climate crisis and about green recovery. I think we all have a different vision of what that means. I mean, we still have, live in an economy where things like aviation and oil and gas are heavily subsidized by the taxpayer. And as long as that is still the case, we're going to struggle to find the money we need to invest in the green recovery. We need to wean these highly polluting industries, but a very effective lobbyists off off these subsidies and redirect that money to the kind of businesses that we want. And I think it's actually really unfair, particularly to the workers in those industries, to to kind of leave them like to the mercy of the oil and gas companies and so on, which when those are sunset industries, we know that people would like to transition to green jobs. We know they'll need support for to do that. The Scottish Greens are offering a jobs guarantee for not only everyone under 30, but for all oil and gas workers as well, so that we can help people transition away from them. We cannot abandon people to industries that must decline. Uh, we must instead plan for long-term future. And I think there is a real appetite for that, to build things to last, to build things that we can leave as a legacy going forward in Scotland, like, for example, upgrading our railways. How fantastic would it be to be able to leave to our kids and grandkids of a fully efficient, cost-effective railway service, more like what we see in Europe? That's the kind of legacy that we can lead, and that's the kind of investment that we can build that will create jobs and reduce emissions. So these sorts of policies are kind of three-way wins, almost no-brainers, and I would very much hope that the parties can work together on them. Okay, I'm going to move to another question from Millie Dent, who's chair of the SFE's Young Professionals, and she asks, young professionals are concerned about the pandemic creating a lost generation. What are the party's plans to ensure that that doesn't happen? Murdo. Okay, really, really good question uh, from Millie. I mean, first of all, I, I talked a lot about apprenticeships. We want to see an apprenticeship revolution. So every young person who wants an apprenticeship is able to access one. I talked earlier about our uh, skills ideas, the uh, right to retrain account worth £500 for for every adult. So that's a way people can uh, access training, perhaps through local colleges or other uh, training providers. We also, I think, need to look at um, the whole issue with education because we've had for the last year, um, in effect, 12 months of really difficult time for high school students, uh, particularly those who uh, have been setting exams. We had the exams fiasco last year. We now have youngsters facing exam style assignments um, within the next few weeks with no study leave and very little advance notice. And I think they've been pretty badly let down. So that's why looking at education, we're proposing a, a catch up fund. We're proposing a national tutoring program and 3,000 new teachers to get back to where we were 
in 2007. So a range of initiatives there, but we also, of course, need a stable economy and a stable set of fiscal arrangements. And having higher taxes in Scotland than the rest of the UK are not going to attract young professionals to live here and, uh, and do business here. We'll come back to tax, I think, because we've got questions to ask of everybody. But Daniel, that issue of young people, young professionals leaving Scotland, that's been a long-standing problem, particularly in financial services after a pandemic. How would you retain that talent in Scotland? Well, I mean, I think we need to ensure that there are opportunities here you know, for people uh, to, to, to take. I mean, I think you know, young professionals will go where opportunities lie, lie. So that's why we need a kind of a strong and vibrant uh, financial services sector. But it's, I think it's also why I think that the, the, the steps that we take for reskilling are hugely important. So, uh, you know, we've got a package of over a billion pounds as part of our jobs recovery program that includes uh, retraining, reskilling, and a jobs guarantee, which very much extends the the, the, the principles that that, that, that Sandy uh, uh, worked on. But but the, the, the critical point here is is that I think actually ensuring that we have uh, policies to allow people to reskill when you know the, the economy changes around them, so that they can retrain and continue their career in different directions. Now, this is an important point because this is I think critical for the recovery, but it's also just the right thing to do. You know, this is a point that I think that, that has been made quite consistently before the pandemic. And I think a lot of the approaches that we need to take to recovery are about doing what was always the right thing to do, whether that's about climate change, about reskilling, digitization, but it's about accelerating those things. So I think if we have a, a, you know, a, a robust reskilling uh, regime, then I think that's ultimately what will attract professionals because they know they're coming somewhere that they can continue to have uh, opportunities as well as the opportunities that, that are here today. Christine, this question's related to this, but it comes from Kevin Scott from PwC. And he is saying that with uh, post-Brexit, London is battling to retain its place as the capital of finance. But how does Scotland then compete against London and how do we attract? What, what's our USP? I think um, it's interesting that all these questions, the one about the, you know, the COVID recovery and about young people and how we retain that position, they are all coming from, if you like, the same, the same route. What does the next 10 years hold for all of us and how do we ensure it? And I think, um, I think we want not to be battling with London. I think we need to take the same approach as we want to see the financial services sector take with government and the financial services sector wants to see, and that's working with London. Um, because working together, we will be much stronger um, than if we are competing with one another. And I think what we need to do as part of that is ensure that Scotland has a strong economy, that Scotland has um, a strong um, employment network for, for people and make sure Scotland has a reputation as one of the most highly skilled and adaptable workforces in Europe. And what we want to see is Scottish training boards um, for people to help them change their careers. It may be that financial services going into this and trying to overcome the, the impact of Brexit has to you know, think about reskilling, bringing people in. And what we would offer is £5,000 because we don't think that the Conservatives offer us £5,500 um, would um, touch the sides of the, the issue. Um, Scottish training boards accompanied by careers advice to help people future-proof new skills. And I think um, coming out of this, financial services want to see governments, both governments, respond 
to the the problems that they are facing, and that's been one of the problems. Um, and it's sorry it's to digress slightly, but that's been one of the problems with Brexit is that fin the financial services sector was not adequately taken into account and adequately protected in the trade deal which the government negotiated. And I think the first thing that we have to do is work to improve those conditions for um, Scotland, um, every bit as much, possibly even more than for England, and make sure that going forward that um, a relationship with the EU does not mean that people see it as a more viable place to, to operate um, than they do um, the United Kingdom. Well, on that, I want to come to tax. So, Kate, how do you make Scotland an attractive place for well-paid young professionals to stay if there's a tax incentive to be elsewhere? Well, I would argue that there isn't a tax incentive to be elsewhere because you've got to look at the, the full toolbox of taxes. Now, of course, we only have limited control over uh, rates and bans when it comes to income tax. We have uh, committed to keeping them stable um, over the, the next period. But when it comes, comes to council tax and non-domestic rates, which are the two primary uh, taxes on business uh, and on households, um, what we've set out this year is a uh, is no is a freezing of council tax um, and uh, an increase in the eligibility for payment of council tax for young people. So you will start being eligible for council tax, liable for council tax, aged uh, 22 to help with some of those uh, household bills. And on businesses, we're the only part of the, the UK to uh, ensure that that 100% uh, rates relief is extended. Um, I think, sorry, Christine, I think you might not be a mute. Uh, if that, apologies. Um, for non-domestic rates, uh, ensuring that no business in the retail, hospitality and leisure sectors pay rates for this coming year to allow them to use that uh, money to support jobs um, and to restart. Uh, so, you know, there's a... We use the tax levers that we have to A, make sure it is as stable as possible to allow businesses to plan ahead. But secondly, you've got to look at not just in terms of one rate or one band and income tax, but at the, the mix of taxes. And of course, the more taxes that we have in our toolbox, the more intelligently we can use that to, to offset, to provide incentives and to make sure that we're ultimately raising sufficient revenue for our important public services, um, as well as making sure it's a supportive regulatory and tax environment. Well, Murdo had his poker face on there, uh, Kate, but um, Murdo, you're suggesting tax cuts. I mean, is that fair in an environment that we're living in right now? Well, what, what we've said is you know, our ambition is to restore income tax parity with the rest of the UK. But you know, we're realistic about it. We're not proposing that you know, this year or next year. Our, our ambition is to do that over uh, the course of the next parliament um, as um, the economy allows and as the growth in tax revenues allows. So, you know, it's our ambition, but, you know, we're, we're realistic about it. And I was very interested to read the Institute for Fiscal Studies analysis of our manifesto commitments where, you know, they recognised that, you know, unlike the SNP, we'd actually published a set of figures with our manifesto saying how all our proposals could be paid for, uh, including, of course, what we're saying uh, on taxation. Um, but, but you know, Kate, Kate talks about you know, different taxes. She didn't mention, incidentally, uh, lands and building transaction tax, which is substantially higher in Scotland than it is in England. So if, if you're a young professional, you know, and somebody in financial services might have the choice of a job in London, in Leeds, in um, Newcastle, in Edinburgh, you're looking at uh, potentially paying quite substantially more in income tax, quite substantially more in LBTT to, to buy a property. These will be factors. So I think we need to be very cautious 
about extending the tax gap between Scotland and the rest of the UK when we have you know, very mobile individuals who can move to different parts of the country when we want them coming here and building their careers here. I can see uh, Lorna getting very animated, but I wanted to go to Daniel first. Just to say, Daniel, I mean, the IFS has actually criticised both Murdo and Kate's manifestos around spending commitments and how they'd be paid for. You've got the benefit of your manifesto not having been published yet. But on the question of tax and how we all pay for everything, where do you sit? Well, can I just say our, our manifesto has been in a steady state for two weeks. Unfortunately, the Duke of Edinburgh's death uh, caused us some issues with the timing of that. Uh, but I've no doubt the IFS will give us an absolutely uh, clean bill of health uh, when it does come out. Um, but look, there's some really important issues here. And if I can make just a slightly impudent point, this is not the first time the SNP has said that we need to uh, reform council tax. I mean, indeed, this is you know, 14 years in the making and it's overdue. And I think actually our, both the, those local levies uh, on, on, uh, for tax, both on uh, households and non-domestic rates, really are an urgent need of reform. Council tax is a, is a rather arcane tax that's based on the notional value of properties back when council tax was created. And non-domestic rates essentially has not factored in the fact that the, the whole uh, way that businesses work in terms of digital or online has completely changed the landscape and, and, and where true value is. So we need a root and branch review of both of those levies so that we actually have fair taxation for individuals to pay for local services, but, but also that essentially the, 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 the uh, local levy on businesses actually reflects their ability to pay. Actually taxes where income and revenues are, are being generated, not where they used to be uh, 20 or 30 uh, years ago. But the, the other point I would just make, you know, you know people aren't that. You know, they don't just choose where they uh, live based purely on, on income tax rates. They look at a broad range of different things. And indeed, an affordability includes lots of different things, including cost of housing, uh, you know, the, the, the quality of local services, the quality of an education system. And there are lots of countries which tolerate variations in those things. So I, I, you know, I think we need to be cautious about increasing taxes in, in the coming uh, months and, and, and years, because ultimately we, we need to see a recovery and, and increases in taxation can inhibit uh, recovery. But, but we shouldn't be scared of doing things differently in Scotland uh, either. And, and ultimately we, we need to tax those who have the ability to pay because we will, uh, you know, we will need to pay for public services and we will need to pay uh, for the recovery. And, and as those who can pay, of where the, the, the burden of taxation should fall. Well, that leads me nicely to you, Lorna, because you want to introduce a millionaire's tax, which might not get you a lot of fans in the room today. But can you explain what that would mean to people? Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna I'm gonna backtrack just a teensy bit because I am one of those skilled immigrants that a highly mobile person that I have come to Scotland and chosen to live in Scotland and to work here. And I assure you at no point did I ever look at the tax situation. What I was excited by when I came to Scotland to work was the opportunities to work in world leading technology. At the time it was Silicon Glen, but now it's renewables. That is what exciting, that is how you draw in talent. And the financial services sector is no different. If there's exciting stuff happening, if it looks like there's a long-term future for the industry, if it's a vibrant place to be, people will come. And it always concerns me a great deal when we talk about 
income tax, what you mean is a tax on work. And as a working person, a tax on work is what we should call it because rents and dividends are also income, but you tax them a lot less than you tax people's work. So we absolutely need to be looking at wealth taxes as Kate pointed out, many businesses have done staggeringly well during the pandemic, billionaires upon billionaires. And it's only reasonable to ask those businesses to recirculate some of that money through the economy. Taxes are not punishments. They're the way in which we keep the money moving. As all of you will know, for a healthy economy, money needs to be moving. And the best way to keep money moving is to put it in the pockets of people who will actually spend it. If you let it move up, the food chain, it disappears offshore and disappears out of our economy and the wealth that we build that we all work for every day disappears out of Scotland and we need to keep that in Scotland. So things like a windfall tax, a tax on millionaires is a way to keep the economy functional and to stop this drift of the rich forever getting richer and the poor forever getting poorer. We have to turn that around if we are to have a fair and green recovery from the pandemic. Daniel, you wanted to come in there. Just briefly, can I just ask Lorna about the millionaires tax? So my understanding is your proposal would include housing and include pensions. Now, if you look at, at uh, the proportion of people that, that fall within that, and it sounds like a lot of money, but I'm not sure that it is, especially if you look at the 55 to 65 age group, that's probably around a third of the population, if you include of those. So are you not in severe danger of penalising people who've been saving for their pensions and probably capturing significant numbers of people that you might not consider being wealthy, such as households where you've got, you know, people who are nurses, teachers, you know, who have essentially got quite generous pension pots because of public sector pensions. So not a real danger with your proposals that you're capturing people that you're not intending to. So our calculations, we estimate that one in 10 people in Scotland would be affected. And of course, like all taxes of this kind, it would be only tax on what was above a million pounds. So you're, you'd, be, you'd be fine on assets up to a million pounds. Um, so yeah, one in 10 people we uh, expect to be affected. Well, I have figures from the House of Commons Library that we suggest it's about a third. So well, there we go. I'm going to move on from that because uh, we're really we're running out of time fastly fast um, we know from work that Benny Higgins did for the Scottish government on, on economic recovery immediately as we went into this pandemic that there's a feeling that business isn't being listened to by government or by politicians Mado how would you do you recognize that and how would you rectify it yeah I mean this is an issue that we've raised consistently over the past year in the in the context of COVID because we've been calling for uh, a business advisory council to be set up uh, to help um, inform the Scottish government on decisions around COVID so I mean even just in the last couple of days you know I'm sure everybody's seen the backlash there's been from the hospitality industry who, who, who are being told it seems that they can reopen uh, we expect from from Monday of next week but they're also being told that they will have to have uh, one meter social distancing put in place uh, for those people sitting inside. And they're all saying, and I was listening to somebody on the on the radio this morning in hospitality saying this is you know, totally impractical because it means that you know, you know, groups of six individuals will have to sit at tables that are so large that they cannot actually source them from suppliers. So you know, it's just a totally unrealistic um, to say hospitality can reopen on that basis. And the Scottish government is also saying that basically all grant support is going to stop uh, as from at the end of this month. So these businesses will not get any financial support, will be permitted to reopen, but in practice cannot trade. And that's a, that's a very good example of the disconnect there is between um, er, learned 
um, and lived business experience and what's coming out of the Scottish government. So I think there needs to be much better engagement. And when we're taking decisions, whether it's about you know, relaxing COVID restrictions or whatever else, I think um, there needs to be much better mechanisms to allow the views of business to be heard within government and actually acted on. Kate, did you recognise that characterisation by Benny Higgins in his report? Yes, for two reasons. Any government that finds itself having to lock down the economy will probably face a rocky relationship uh, with business because whether it's north of the border, south of the border, it has been a challenging year. Uh, businesses have been on their knees. Businesses are through their reserves. They have the pain and the anguish of managing staff and workforce, and it has been horrendous. Uh, but secondly, there's a question about how we translate engagement into action. So I've probably engaged with business on a daily basis for the last 13, 14 months. Uh, the business organisations, the representative organisations have uh, been in touch with uh, Scottish government again on a daily basis. There is extensive engagement. I don't think it's engagement that's the problem. It's jointly working in partnership to resolve issues. Now, at times that will be difficult because there will be other concerns, perhaps health concerns or otherwise, that mean we can't do everything that we're being asked to do. But I think there's an opportunity with recovery to work in partnership because bluntly, we will not see economic recovery unless it is a national endeavour and unless we are all playing our part. And that's, I think, an opportunity to reset that relationship um, and to work jointly on things, whether it's a young person's guarantee or whether it's infrastructure investment to do things together, because there's no public services without a strong economy. So economic recovery is essential. I want to, uh, Maddo mentioned the elephant in the room at the very beginning of, uh, of this, and I just want to go back to that. I mean, we're already seeing an exit of money and jobs in financial services from the City of London because of Brexit. I want to ask you all when you think it would be the right time for an independence referendum. Start with you, Daniel. We have to concentrate on recovery. I mean, you, you asked in a previous question, which didn't come to me, whether 10 years was a uh, a, a fair assessment. I, I, I think it's, 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 it's going to be at least 10 years. If you look at previous economic shocks, either 2008 or, you know, I think really that the closest parallel is the war. Then we saw what happened in the lead up to 2014. It, it sucked the oxygen from the room. It took, you know, time and effort away from the machinery of government. It took uh, money away. We, we can't afford to have that happen again. It has to be ruled out, I think, at, at the very least, for the duration of this parliament. But uh, uh, for as long as we have to focus on recovery, it just cannot be a good idea to divert time, atten attention, uh, and indeed investment uh, away from that recovery. Christina, you're just gonna say, I agree with Daniel? Of course she is. Um, <laughs> you might expect me to, and I probably, and, and yeah, I, I do largely agree with Daniel. I think the problem we have is that we have a situation where the only important thing to most people in this country at the moment is recovering. It's getting through the pandemic. And we don't know. Ten years might, we might begin to see the end of it. But I think that this um, pandemic is going to be on, it's going to be paradigm changing in terms of the economy. We saw in the 1930s with the Great Depression that economists moved to a different model and they started being much more Keynesian in their outlook on you know, what was happening. And then in the 80s, um, with Thatcherism, we saw yet another change in the way that we looked at the economy. And I think that 
you know, we're all is said and done, this pandemic will change how we look at everything. Actually, Kate said, as well as being a huge challenge, a challenge of several lifetimes, there are opportunities to change things and do things differently, to move on, to have a, a greener economy, a more sustainable economy, bring in those industries that um, Lorna was uh, saying we, we, we should punish, bring them in and use their skills and get them on our side so that they are part of the change. Uh, but we only do that if we work together. And that is something that Scotland must have a better chance of doing as part of the United Kingdom. And to me, there's an amazing irony in the SNP criticising the impact of Brexit on our economy. And it has had and is having a huge impact on sectors like the fishing economy, food processing that are vital to Scotland's economy. It's having an impact on financial services. And yet proposing to do exactly the same thing again at the height of a pandemic. That's just not economically sensible. And I think we all recognise, all reasonable people would say, this is not the time to be talking about more economic dislocation. Kate, are you able to answer briefly? Yeah, everybody's talking about recovery. Everybody's talking about building back better to tackle the structural challenges and not return to life of the past or accept the status quo. Change is essential either way for recovery. And so, you know, my argument would be, let's have believers here in Scotland to ensure that recovery is shaped here in Scotland. So if you want a timescale, once the immediate impact is over, but soon enough to allow us to shape that recovery here in Scotland. And we will work closely with others, including financial services, to build infrastructure, to build a regulatory environment. There are opportunities ahead. Uh, let's, let's take advantage of them. Okay, I'm not going to come to you, Lorna or Maddo, because I kind of know the answer. A very quick final question from me, and if you can keep it really brief, and it's probably a selfish question, it's about working from home. I can't stand it. Uh, very keen to get back into the office. From all of you, very briefly, how do you see our pattern of work changing as we go into recovery? Maddo? Yeah, I, mean, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, I've had conversations with people in, in financial services who see this as an opportunity. Because instead of, of, of if, for example, if you're a big Edinburgh-based company, instead of just being able to recruit from within commuting distance of Edinburgh, suddenly you can you can broaden your recruitment umbrella to, to many more far-flung parts of Scotland that people are only having to come in to the office maybe you know one day a week. Now, actually, that's great for the environment. It's great for climate change. It's actually probably pretty good for most people's work-life balance, but it requires top quality infrastructure and connectivity at home to make it work. But I think we should see this as a positive. And I know that the financial services industry is right up for embracing this. Christine. I think going forward, what we've learned is that there's no one size fits all. There are some jobs that just haven't been possible to do working from home and others that have. But I think the thing we have to bear in mind is the impact. Like you said, Mandy, I am so tired of working from home. I need the interaction of being with other people. So while, as Murdo says, it will open up opportunities in some ways, we do have to recognise that it had a huge impact on the mental health of a lot of people. Um, people have started jobs and not yet met their colleagues. People are um, finding it difficult to, to interact, if, particularly if they're living on their own. So I think we have to not close our minds to a more flexible approach to working. But I think we've learned that while we all loved it in the beginning, we've begun to see that it does have drawbacks as we've moved on. 
and people will make up their own minds and there's no one size fits all going forward. I must point out, I don't have Hollywood pull-ups in my bedroom. I am actually in the office. <laughs> Murdo. Oh, sorry, Daniel. You can't go to Murdo twice. That's yeah, no, 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 I know. <laughs> uh, well, look, I, I, there, there, there's pros and cons, aren't there? I, I mean, I think we, we've all seen in the pandemic that you can do things so much more quickly and rapidly using online meeting platforms. And, you know, just to, you know, added to, to what Murdo has already said about people working from elsewhere. And there's in, real inclusion possibilities for for. for you know, people that, that perhaps can't travel as much because of family commitments. But then ultimately we are social beings. I mean, I think we do uh, things more uh, efficiently and effectively when we're in the same place as other people. Um, and, we, and it's just more straightforward. So I, I, I think there has to be a balance. And I think one of the things I think we need to safeguard is well, absolutely we embrace the new technology we've all learned to use, but let's make sure that people aren't forced to use it, that there's a genuine choice and that it's, it's used in the most appropriate way so that people who do want to work co-located can, uh, but you know, when it's actually better, quicker, easier, uh, use the technology then. So there's a, there's a balance to be struck, I feel. Lorna. Yeah, I certainly know that um, many disabled people and people who are carers have found the remote working to be transformational, enabling them to participate, for example, in hustings like this that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get to. So my short answer is, I hope that it would be a lot more flexible and allow workers a lot more choice. And of course, we would like to move to a four day work week so that everyone can have a bit more time to enjoy life properly. Kate. More flexible work in more flexible places. So if I can put my constituency local hat on, let's repopulate the Highlands and Islands while working in Edinburgh. Good thought. Yeah, who knew I would miss people? Anyway, on that note, no, we have actually run out of time. I'm going to invite Philip Grant, Chairman of SFE, to just make a few closing remarks. Thank you very much, Mandy, and thank you for leading a highly relevant and thought-provoking discussion and for moderating the session uh, so expertly. Uh, on behalf of SFE, I'd like to thank the whole team at Hollywood Magazine for arranging today's hustings. This election is coming at a critical time for the remobilisation and recovery of large parts of our economy, our public sectors and the social fabric of our communities. In all aspects of life in Scotland, the events of the last year have caused us all to reflect on priorities as we recover. And it's reassuring to see a lot of that reflected in what we've heard this morning um, and with some reassuring alignment actually across the parties. So I'd like to thank Kate, Christine, Lorna, Murdo and Daniel for being positive and articulating their, their policies with a healthy degree of challenge and an occasional elephant uh, wandering through the room and for taking time out of their busy campaigning schedules to be with us today. You all made thoughtful contributions and there were definitely some points that we will consider as part of our own future engagement as we move towards uh, publishing and delivering on a forthcoming refresh of SFE's sector strategy. Finally, I'd like to thank everyone for attending. We had over 150 registrations for this event, which is very encouraging and is testament to the importance uh, that financial and professional services place on working closely with parties across the political spectrum in these challenging times. We at SFE recognise the vital role that financial services plays in supporting wider economic recovery, enabling carbon transition and financing and protecting the day-to-day -day lives and futures of people across Scotland. It's why we chose to publish our first ever manifesto with an invitation and commitment to collaboration. So please don't hesitate to contact either Sandy or myself if you have any questions about SFE and their approach to any of the issues raised during the discussion. But thank you all once again for a really productive um, session and enjoy the rest of your day. And finally, I want to thank SFE, all our candidates for joining us. Make sure you vote and I'll see you on the other side. Thank you.
You've been listening to a Hollywood Hustings on the Economy. Tune in tomorrow to hear our Hustings on the Environment. Thanks for listening.